as we begin, I want to just express my thanks to you guys for last week, especially for the many cards and the kind words that were shared. I appreciate that immensely, and it, very, it touched both Bethany and I. So thank you for that. Um, as we begin, I'm going to ask you to please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. We have just two more verses about elder pastors before we move on to the role of deacons, which is the next section in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So this morning, our study in 1 Timothy 3 takes us to verse 6. And so I want to continue that series and bring to you a message that I've titled, The Elders Call a Master Over His Own Salvation. So I ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. First Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It is a trustworthy saying, if any man aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a good work. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but considerate, peaceable, free from the love of money, leading his own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. You may be seated. One summer, a groundskeeper at Wheaton College in Illinois was tasked with the redevelopment of one of the fields that was nearing the end of its usefulness. The grass had become well-worn and really was not suitable for use. So the groundskeeper leveled the field, and then he threw down some seed, but he failed to sow it properly, and so it all washed away. As the new school year neared, the pitch was still nothing but a dirt patch. The groundskeeper started over, so replanting the seed and, and tending to it, and a short while later, new grass did indeed spring up. And so by the time they were entering the fall and the autumn, it looked very lush and very green, but it still wasn't ready for use. Had it been used for soccer matches, which were going on at that time, those grass chunks would have come up with every step and destroyed the field. As one person says it, the grass needed to weather the storms of winter before it was ready for use. It needed to take root and sit there and be able to be nourished and planted before it could be used. This is true of leadership as well. Verse 6 of Timothy, 1 Timothy 3 reads, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Like newly planted grass, a new convert needs time to take root, firmly, ran, firmly planted in the ground before rising up to leadership. What happens if one is not able to develop roots? Let me tell you the story of two men 
one you probably know and one you probably don't know. In the mid-1900s, there were two very young and yet very gifted evangelists. They traveled together. They preached together. They called upon people to believe in Christ together. The one you know is Billy Graham. The one you probably don't know is a man by the name of Charles Templeton. Templeton first professed faith in 1936. And then within a month of establishing or saying that he professed faith, he then began a new ministry, a personal ministry. Together, Charles, Charles Spurgeon, together Charles Templeton and Billy Graham were called the Gold Dust Twins. And it was them, together with a man by the name of Tory Johnson, that founded the Youth for Christ. I've heard it said that Charles Templeton was a more gifted preacher than Billy Graham. Of the two, he was the one that was more charismatic. He was more winsome in his personality. He was considered both intelligent and eloquent, both persuasive and effective. In 1946, he was given an award by the National Association of Evangelicals. This is really a silly award, but it was the award he was given. Best used of God, as if they would know. <laughs> Together, Graham and Templeton, they went on an evangelistic tour of Europe preaching to packed venues in a whole list of different countries. Not to forget that Templeton went on to preach here in the United States. He was given a weekly television program on NBC, preaching to crowds of 20,000 people. He was both a church planter and a pastor, both a missionary and a pastor. And then in 1957, he declared himself an agnostic rejecting both the Bible and Jesus Christ. He credits first the reading of Thomas Paine as that which swayed him. And then he says in the course of the next 10 days, he read a bunch of different modern secular philosophers and ideologies, and that convinced him to turn his back on God. And at that point, he left the ministry, and he became a journalist. Originally from Canada, he did have a short career as well in politics up there, at one point becoming very, very close to being the Prime Minister of Canada. In a point of finality, Charles Templeton left behind his faith with a book that he titled, Farewell to God. This is what happens when one is not given the opportunity to let their faith take root. When faith in God is not given the time to take root, it becomes very easy to replace it with something else, a faith in self. All the work of God will become the work of self. Not saying, look at what God did, but look what I have done. And so then it becomes very easy to leave behind, as Templeton did, God and set him by the wayside. This next verse in our text, it serves a purpose offering itself as a protection both for the church and for the convert, protecting them both from the consequences that pride produces. And so we look upon the Lord's instructions, understanding why a recent convert should not be placed into the leadership of the church. And therefore, I want you to note first 
the decisive criteria. The decisive criteria. The verse at first just gives a criteria for those who are to assume leadership and says very simply, he must not be a recent convert. In his book on pastoral rule, Gregory the Great writes, no one presumes to teach an art that he is not first mastered through study. How foolish it is, therefore, for the inexperienced to assume pastoral authority when the care of souls is the art of arts. Though there are many roles, many critical roles and critical giftings that the Lord assigns to his people, both inside the church and to work outside the church, the most important task that the Lord delegates is the care and stewardship of his people. Therefore, he must not be someone who is new to following Christ, someone who has proven faithful first in the little things, is the one who is qualified, someone who has struggled and labored over the small things before eventually be given more responsibility in the bigger things. One who has just graduated from college, as an example, with a degree in accounting, would not immediately be placed into the position or given a job of primary controller for a very large company. But first, that person would be tested on smaller projects, given oversight before growing into that role. So how much more important then, with the care of God's people, is it that someone not be a recent convert. When I speak and when I titled this as a leader being a master over his salvation, I don't mean to say that he saves himself, but rather he is one who has come to faith and had sufficient time to wrestle with it, to learn and to grow in it. He is not a recent convert who lacks certainty. He's someone who has wrestled with the big questions and the big doubts that may envelop a new believer. And now is someone who has deeper assurance of his own salvation and of his own faith. So how recent is too recent then? Six months? Six years? What is that timeline? On that note, the word of God is silent. There's no indication of exactly how long someone should be saved because it's not the length of time that someone is saved that is so critical. Neither does this verse mean to say that youthfulness is prevented, that someone must be of an older age in order to be able to serve as a leader. If that were the case, then Timothy himself would be disqualified from leadership because he was young. This verse, though, reflects someone whose maturity has grown and he has proven himself not just that his salvation is genuine, but that he walks consistently in that salvation. And when faced with the decision not to walk in it, he still proves faithful. To Titus, Titus 2, 11 through 14, part of what we read this morning, Paul describes it this way. In fact, how about you turn a few pages over to Titus chapter 2 in your own Bibles. Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2, I want to focus on verses 11 through 14, and Paul describes it this way. 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So here we have these effects of salvation that Paul says is one who has started to show himself faithful as a follower, and he's renouncing ungodliness, learning and training to live as self-controlled and upright. But notice the reason why in this text. It says it is a response to Jesus Christ, expectantly waiting for his return. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who is waiting expectantly and hopefully for the Lord to return is the one who anticipates his coming and wants to be ready for him then. And so that person is the process in the process of making himself presentable to the Lord giving up ungodliness and the worldly passions. But notice what the first word in verse 12 is. Training. That present progressive tense, indicating that this is an ongoing action. Salvation does not bring instant perfection, but rather it is a process that takes time. This world is our everyday training ground for holiness by which each situation and each circumstance teaches us something about what it means to follow Christ. And so by training us to follow Christ here, we are being prepared to follow Christ there, in heaven. But the fact that we are in the process does not mean that we are with an excuse. We can't say, well, I'm never going to be like Christ in this life, and so I'm just going to do whatever. Training implies ongoing participation. An ongoing desire to grow and seeking to improve. That's what progressive sanctification is. To continue training so that when faced with the same situation again, we will respond with more godliness this time than we did last time. So what we have is this process, this ongoing training, in which some people are probably more advanced and more further along in that process than we are. And those placed in leadership in our text should be the furthest along in that process, further than those that they are leading and shepherding. It's hard to lead someone else in godly character and wisdom if the one leading lacks godly character and wisdom. Recently, someone shared with me a situation of their own church, and specifically at their youth group, in which something happened, and I'm not gonna give you all the details, but something happened that probably really shouldn't have been that big of a deal. Based on what did happen, it could have been a harmful situation, at least for one of the youth, but nobody was really sure what was going on. But a simple investigation with the parents would have revealed that there actually wasn't an issue at all. And actually what was going on was something very good. But that's not what happened. The youth pastor had only been in that role for a few months, for a short time, and six months prior to that, he was a professing unbeliever. In fact, in his own youth, he attended church. He spent a year in Bible college before, like Templeton, 
He renounced Christ completely and turned away from Christ. And now, nearly 25 years later, he made a profession of faith, and then six months after that was given the role of youth pastor. So he lacked the wisdom and the experience to deal with that issue that was going on. And the situation blew up and eventually caused a church conflict. That damage could have been done, could have been, or could have been avoided had that church and that person simply followed God's revealed will in our text. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. There must be time given, time to develop a reputation and, and trust through godliness. There must be time given for him to develop experience. I remember from verse 1, a number of weeks ago, that the role of overseer, pastor, elder, it's work. And it's a work that requires extensive roles. And so he needs time to develop that experience and wisdom to function in that role, in any of those roles. And finally, you must be given time to remove bias. A new believer is only freshly removed from the world. And some of the world's influence is still going to remain on that new believer. One bound for leadership needs time to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ so that he is more influenced by Christ than by the culture. We would not let a doctor practice medicine without first having studied it. And so neither should one be caring for the soul without first having their soul cared for by the Lord. He needs to be the one who will proclaim with the psalmist in Psalm 25, 5, Lead me in your truth. Teach me, Lord, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. So the decisive criteria is that a leader must not be a recent convert. This serves many practical reasons and acts as a means to protect both the church and the convert and ultimately fulfills God's word. But verse 6 in 1 Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 3, it actually gives us a very specific reason. Paul specifies here a rationale that he wants the readers to be aware of with this particular qualification, saying, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit. And so I want you to know, second, the downfall of conceit. The downfall of conceit. The decisive criteria is given because conceit or pride, it comes with these pitfalls. And one is put, who is put into leadership before his time to grow in his faith and become grounded in it is prone to pride. Putting someone into leadership too soon creates circumstances for that pride to develop and to grow and to be cultivated. So what we have before us is this command, a criteria or qualification for leadership that comes with this warning, essentially saying, do not place someone in leadership who has only recently made a profession of faith because that person will become prideful. Pride was an issue in Ephesus. Three chapters from now, in, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accord with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. 
He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and it goes on. So those who teach a different doctrine from the word of God is full of conceit, is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. But what does chapter 1 say of 1 Timothy? That they're teaching a different doctrine. So the logical conclusion is that leaders in Ephesus, by teaching falsely, having shown themselves now to be puffed up with conceit and know nothing. The church in Ephesus is not healthy. It's not in a healthy state, and their false teaching proves that. It proves that they are prideful and puffed up with that conceit. Pride is an issue of the heart because it blinds the heart. First, it blinds a person to the state of their own heart. That individual becomes self-deceived, this very self-deceived person that James describes as one who is like a man who looks intently in the mirror, but he looks at himself and, and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. They think themselves better off than they really are. For leaders in this state, they, they can't be confronted then for their own sin, for their own failures. Because when they're confronted, what they're going to do is deny it or excuse it or justify it. And so they will never admit their own shortcomings, but instead they'll continue to lead in that sin, which causes deeper harm to the church. Second, it blinds the leader to the state of others' hearts. The one who is prideful is unaware of the needs of others, so that when others face the consequences for sin, he lacks the compassion they need. Or... When they are dealing with the crises of life, he'll lack the care they need. The one who is prideful is blinded to the needs of others. And so he will not be able to shepherd people according to the circumstances, as is part of the work found in verse 1. And so pride blinds a person to the state of their own heart. Pride blinds a person to the state of others' hearts. I would say it also blinds them to the state of the church's heart. Filled with an ego, the prideful leader will make decisions based on his will and not on God's will. He will fail to assess the state of the church as it is, and thus fail to lead the church in a way that shepherds their hearts and stewards the bride of Christ for the Lord. In the summer of 1986, there were two ships that collided in the Black Sea off the coast of Russia. Hundreds of passengers died as they hurled, were hurled into the icy waters below. News of the disaster caused further problems when the investigation revealed what the cause of the accident was. It wasn't a technology problem like a radar malfunctioning. It wasn't the weather like a thick fog. The cause was pride. Each captain was aware of the other ship's presence nearby. Both could have steered clear, but according to the news report, neither captain wanted to give way to the other. Each was too proud to yield first, and by the time they came to their senses, it was too late. Pride always has consequences. Like the captain, the leaders are responsible for the care of the people in the boat. And the church doesn't want leaders who are so prideful that they are unwilling to yield to the Lord's will. And so they willingly allow the church members to be thrown into the icy cold waters to perish without relief. Again, verse 6 says, he must not be a recent convert. 
or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. What that suggests then is that God doesn't want prideful leaders in the church. What does that imply? It suggests that the desire is to have leaders of excellent humility, meaning that humility seems to be a requirement of a qualification for leadership. That was actually the very topic of last week's sermon from Dr. Dave Dietz, the humble shepherd. So there's no need to review that here. But I can tell you the story of one of my favorite teachers. As I was going to class many years ago, I was dreading this class. Not because there was anything wrong, I just didn't think it was going to be an enjoyable class based on the assignments and everything that we did. When it was all said and done, it was my favorite class. Still is my favorite class that I've ever taken. The reason was the professor, the teacher. And what it was is that throughout his life, he had been through some very difficult and trying circumstances, incredibly hard. That had made him humble. And that humbleness made him approachable. We were able to have deeper conversations, both personally and from the word of God. And he took God's word and applied it to life in such a way that made it a revealing, wonderful force. See, humility makes a leader approachable and trustworthy. Pride makes a leader the opposite, unapproachable, untrustworthy, and that hinders his ability to minister to God's people. Pride was the original sin. It was pride that we find in the Garden of Eden that caused Adam and Eve to take of the fruit and to eat of it. They, in their pride, wanted to be like God, so they fell into sin and ushered sin and condemnation into the world. Pride has consequences and causes one to come into condemnation as a result, which is where our text takes us next. And so I want you to note third, the devil's condemnation. The devil's condemnation. So we have first this decisive criteria that a leader must not be a recent convert, because if he is, he will become puffed up with conceit, leading to the downfall of deceit. And that downfall is that it will lead to the devil's condemnation. Again, the whole verse reads, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. That becomes a very difficult phrase to translate and interpret, because when we read it literally like that, condemnation of the devil, it sounds as though the devil is the one condemning, as if to say condemnation by or condemnation from the devil. But that doesn't make any sense. Judgment belongs to the Lord, not Satan. The devil does not get to condemn any of us. He has no authority over believers, and so it makes little sense that he may offer any condemnation to them. Instead, it is more likely to signify condemnation like the devil. As in to say, one who becomes puffed up with conceit will find himself receiving a similar judgment as Satan himself received from God. For his disbelief and disobedience, Satan was on the receiving end of condemnation from the Lord. And so turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 28. <clears throat>
Ezekiel 28 is when Ezekiel issues a prophecy over Tyre and then later Sidon. But he proclaims the judgment of God. And beginning in verse 11, he shares this lament over the king of Tyre and compares him to Satan and Satan's fall from the Lord's presence. And so these words are understood to be referring not just to the king of Tyre, but to Satan himself. So read with me verses 11 through 19 of Ezekiel 28. Verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed a guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God, that is his throne. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Verse 16. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and your unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Those are powerful words from the Lord, and they give a history of Satan and who he was. According to verse 14, there was a point when Lucifer was the Lord's servant. Interestingly enough, he still is God's servant, just in a different capacity, and he's not willingly his servant. But there was a time when he was exalted having been given this position over the throne of God, a guardian, guardian cherub, it says, he occupied a place of importance. Verse 17 and verse 14 say that he were marked by beauty and wisdom, but he compromises it all for the sake of his pride. What's interesting is that he occupied a place of supreme importance. There really only seemed to be one higher than him, and, and that was God. That should tell us something about pride. It knows no boundaries. It knows no limits. It will never stop pursuing the next high thing. And so though he had it all, Satan compromised it. Gambling on this bet that he could have more. And he lost that bet and was condemned by God. Verse 16 says, In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Verse 17 continues, Your heart was proud because of your beauty. 
You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to the peace their eyes on you. Isaiah further describes this judgment saying, But you, Satan, are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? Go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. And so in his pride, Satan was humiliated to the point that mortal men could ask and look over him and say, what a pity, what a shame, what a waste. Our text in Timothy describes it as a fall, a fall into a pit is what it is. It says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. It's a fall, much like we say fall into sin or fall into temptation. The new convert, not properly vetted for leadership, also falls, but into condemnation. It means one who has fallen into a pit, which is what we saw in Isaiah. But you were brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. But Matthew uses the same phrase to describe a sheep in Matthew 12, 11, to give us this picture. And he said to them, which one of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Pride leads to a similar pit, but a pit of condemnation, where there's no rescue except from the Lord himself. Satan has fallen into this pit in which he has been judged for his conceit. Convicted for his sin, he's now sentenced to a lifetime of service to the Lord as his enemy, meaning that Satan is God's enemy, but he's still going to be used by God for God's purposes. He's eternally condemned as God's adversary. That's a horrible sentence. How terrible it must be to be condemned eternally as an enemy of God never having that possibility to be redeemed again. The one who falls into pride risks God's righteous judgment, just as Satan did. A prideful person risks the condemnation of God, just as Satan received from the Lord. The more we have been in 1 Timothy, the more fascinating I find the history of the Ephesian church a number of weeks ago, we used Acts 20 as part of our scripture reading. And in that time, we read Paul was warning, and he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he warns them to watch out because there are going to be wolves that come and try to deceive the people of the church. From that fact that Timothy had to be left in Ephesus, and this letter has to even be written, we know that what Paul said in Acts 20 is true, that wolves came and tried to devour the people. And yet, they failed to heed Paul's warning. But then nearly 30 years later, John writes of the church in his letter recounting this vision from the Lord. And he, he commends the church. Revelation 2, 1 through 2 says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be 
false. So Paul warns them that false teachers are going to come. First Timothy tells us that false teachers came. But somewhere along the way, they must have reversed course. I'm guessing because of Paul and Timothy's intervention. But then John also writes a warning. And so after commending them in Revelation 2, 1 through 3, he then warns them in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. John writes at the end of the first century. And sometime in the second century is when we lose any record of the Ephesian church. So in less than a hundred years, the church ceases to exist. It dies out. What happened? Really don't know, other than to say they lost their first love, according to Revelation 2.4. And then 2.5 says if they didn't return and reprint, Christ was going to turn out their limestand, going to remove it. Apparently they didn't return and repent because by the second century their light goes dark. I can't tell you specifically what happened there, though there's probably research that has probable ideas. What I can tell you is whatever the reason is, it caused them to love Christ less because they lost their first love. Their love of Christ was replaced by something else, causing them to no longer love Christ as their first love. That is the same consequence that pride will always have in a person's life. It causes a person to love self so much that they cease to love Christ as they should. And the fact that through John, Christ says, I will remove your lampstand, and then actually does it a time later, tells us that Christ will follow through on his judgment and on his promise of judgment. And so when the word says in 1 Timothy 3, 6, he will fall into the condemnation of the devil, we can expect that it will happen. So what does that mean then? Pride is an issue repeatedly addressed in Scripture. And so the expectation is that the Lord's going to judge all people for their pride. Pride causes many of the conflicts. Do you know when conflict occurs? The source of conflict and anger most often is actually love. Frequently, when we get upset at somebody, when we have conflict... It is because we think they don't love us as much as we love ourselves. That's what pride is. And the Lord will judge it. But our text here is not talking about all people. The context is the local church and the recent convert who has been placed into leadership. He's puffed up with conceit with the Lord. And the, and the Lord will righteously judge him bringing about condemnation that was given to Satan. But I would say consider this, that the church probably faces condemnation or judgment as well. Because through Paul, what the Lord is doing here is issuing instructions. In the negative form, that instruction, that command is, do not put a recent convert into a position of leadership. So if the church chooses to put a new convert or someone who is immature in the faith into a position of leadership, what have they done? They've disobeyed. And disobedience brings the Lord's judgment. What is that judgment? I don't know. 
It could be severe. Or it could be something as simple as letting the church just live with the consequences of their decision. Because when we're in sin, we are outside of God's perfect will, and there will always be natural consequences. Whatever the case may be, though, the judgment is always at the discretion and always appropriate and always righteous because it is at the Lord's discretion. And so that leaves us with a question, how do we respond to this text? How do we avoid the Lord's condemnation? And, and the easy answer is the church should be cautious to who it appoints, not appointing a recent convert. And if the church does try to approach somebody, then that individual should decline the invitation and respond with this verse. So if he's a recent convert, he probably doesn't have the maturity to understand this. I think there's more. When we ask, how do I avoid the Lord's condemnation in this situation, I think we find our answer in a common place, Philippians chapter 2. As we've talked about the downfall of pride, Philippians chapter 2 talks about the need for humility. In fact, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, utilizes Christ as an example. As Paul describes what Christ-like humanity, humility is. And then verses 12 and 13, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. A recent convert has not had time to work out his salvation. And that concept of working out salvation here is the idea of living it out. The idea of having been saved by the work of Christ on the cross, the person is proving it. Proving that they are saved by behaving like a saved person, which is the work of God, it says. And so a recent convert needs time to show his salvation is genuine before being placed into leadership. By working it out, by living it out. He should be studying, growing in the things of the Lord. As I said earlier, we, we would not allow someone to practice medicine without first having studied it. Neither then should we allow someone to care for people's hearts and souls without first having studied it through God's word. And to that end, then the, the church also bears a responsibility there. It means that the church is providing opportunities for the new convert to work out his salvation. It means they are providing teaching and instruction so that the new convert has sufficient knowledge and understanding to live out that salvation. But it also means that the church is providing godly counsel and correction with the new convert. Every time he fails to work out his salvation, they give him insight. And finally, it means the church is providing opportunities to serve to live it out. A recent convert lacks a training and experience and wisdom that leadership requires. In our haste to have leaders, sometimes we hastily rush through the process. But like many situations, really only time will tell who that person is. Only time will tell if that person has a character that the role of an elder pastor requires. And so we must take counsel from the Lord's word when he says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, you are God of salvation, Lord over all. And Father, 
We are so grateful that you are at work in salvation, that it is by your work we can come to you righteously cleaned, Lord. And Father, that in this life you're working in our lives to progressively sanctify us, to cause us to be more and more holy, preparing us for that day when we finally meet you face to face. And so, Father, I pray that we would work out our salvation as a response to who you are and what you've done, Lord. Father, cause us to see you and to want to honor and glorify you more. And in doing so, Lord, Father, may we look upon this text and recognize the importance then of leadership and recognize the importance of your perfect plan of those perfect qualifications you put forth, Lord. And Father, may we strive to live them out and strive to please you through them. And so we thank you for this time and thank you for your word and for your truth, asking that it pierces our hearts continually. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.